Hey, if you forgot your Bibles, open them to John chapter 20. Uh, my name is Steve Wallen, by the way. I'm the campus pastor here. So glad to welcome you here. We've got such a great crowd today. We had a great crowd first service too. So I'm thankful that you've joined us today. I wonder if you've ever accidentally sent the wrong message to someone. Uh, maybe it was autocorrect that causes it to happen. And you tried to tell someone she looked pretty, but instead you told her she looked pregnant. Uh, or maybe it was the right message, but it went to the wrong person, like the message you intended for your boyfriend went to your dad, uh, or something like that. Or I wonder, maybe you sent the wrong message just because you misunderstood a circumstance or you misinterpreted a situation. I remember one uh, time several years ago, my wife and I kind of woke up in the middle of the night. It was about four in the morning, and we both smelled smoke in our house. And so we got up, really scary situation. We walked all throughout our house, didn't see anything. And then I <clears throat> opened our sliding glass door and looked out um, a couple of streets away. And I noticed for all the world, I could see a house on fire. Uh, this, there was a house, we had lived in an established neighborhood, but there was a house being built a couple of streets away from us. And it was just framed and sheathed. And out of the windows, I saw flames leaping and smoke pouring. And I called the fire department. I said, hey, there is a house on this street. It is on fire. Uh, there was nobody there. And they said, okay, what's the address? I said, I don't know the address, but you're going to know it when you see it because it's the one that's got flames leaping out of the windows, okay? Uh, and, uh, and a couple minutes later, I heard the sirens like off in the distance. And I kept looking at this house thinking, it's not, it's like it's not burning down. It's so weird because it's all wood at this point. There's nothing else on it. And so I, I got on my shoes and I walked out. And as I started to walk, I noticed that the house wasn't on fire. There was a fire. It was in a farm field a couple miles from our house, and that was blowing smoke into our neighborhood. So that's where the smoke smell came from. It was very foggy outside this evening, by, or this morning, by the way. It was really foggy, and so it looked like smoke. But what had happened was the construction workers who left that house the night before had left all of the construction lights on in the house. So there's this bright yellowish-orange light in the windows with this fog that made it look like smoke, and then the smell of smoke uh, wafting from the farm field fire, like all combined to make me look like an idiot is what it did. Uh, I was in my 40s, and so I noticed that I needed glasses. I did make an eye doctor appointment after this, but I, called the, I had to call the fire department back and say, um, hey, false alarm, it's not on fire. And they were very angry. They were very upset. 9-11 operators get very angry when you tell them something's on fire, and it isn't. Um, so I don't know what your story of sending the wrong message was. Uh, I told you what my story is, but I can tell you no matter what your story was or my story, they're not gonna be as bad. Doesn't compare probably to the miscommunication that happened uh, that ended up telling the world that Hawaii was under a missile attack. Do you remember this story? It's a true story. It happened back in 2018, just a few years ago. Um, what happened was that North Korea had been testing some intercontinental missiles that the United States believed could carry a nuclear warhead as far as Hawaii. And so for several months, the Defense Department had been conducting these uh, exercises, these test exercises. And during one of these training exercises uh, that were meant to test the early warning system, one employee who thought that the test was real accidentally pushed the wrong button, clicked the wrong button on the computer. And when he did, he alerted all of Hawaii and most of the world that the USA was under missile attack and should take cover immediately. This message went through the emergency alert system, the phone on people's phones. Everybody's phone in Hawaii got this message. It read as follows. It said, incoming ballistic missile alert, uh, inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, if you wake up and you see this message on your phone, you're probably gonna take some action, and people did. Uh, 
for those close to it all, it was a terrifying moment, as you can imagine. The communications that were taking place, even at the nation's highest levels, that there's an incoming missile attack to Hawaii. Friends and family throughout the islands are calling each other, trying to seek shelter, collecting food and water for the inevitable uh, disaster that was to come, and many people even saying their last goodbyes to one another. Now, after some frantic moments, another employee fortunately noticed what was happening and canceled the alert. The agency soon issued a report that it was a false alarm, a huge mistake, and the employee responsible for the mistake was fired very quickly. Um, But to this day, he says he 100% believed it was real. Uh, In fact, he claims it was a system failure, and he did exactly as he was trained to do. But I know, I can tell you, I still remember my mess up many years later. I'm sure that that employee still remembers his mess up, and if you've made a mistake like that, I'm sure you remember the time that you've sent the wrong message or the time that you messed up or the time that you failed. If you've ever failed at something, uh, you know how devastating failure can be. In fact, I I believe that Bob Goff, author Bob Goff is right when he says this. He says, if you're like most people, I bet you remember way more mistakes that you have made than your successes along the way. How true is that? We all fail. We all make mistakes. And sadly, our, our past failings and mistakes can have the tendency to follow us around. Uh, They hold us back, they beat us down, and if we're not careful, they can become your identity. Um, But the great thing about Jesus is that Jesus in you means that nothing like that, nothing from your past has to define who you are. Your, Your past doesn't define you, what others say about you doesn't define you, your mistakes don't have to determine the course of your life. Jesus can come into your life and make all things new. He can redeem any mistake. He can redeem any life. There's nothing too great for him. And so today we're gonna take a look at one example of that, a marvelous story of the resurrection. Um, This is a true life event that we detail. In fact, uh, it may feel like November out there, but we're gonna celebrate Easter today, okay, guys? Uh, We're gonna look at the resurrection as seen through the eyes of a woman named Mary Magdalene or Miriam the Migdal. And Mary Mary is a woman who had a past. Uh, She had made some mistakes. And in addition to that, some things had happened to her. But then she ran into Jesus and he changed everything for her. And and some of you can relate to her story so much because at, at some point you felt like you were trapped before Jesus rescued you. But the challenging thing about life, and and maybe this will speak specifically to some of you today, is that even though in Christ we are forgiven of our mistakes, we've been freed from our sins, uh, we have a very real enemy in the evil one. And he would like nothing more than to have you believe that those mistakes have to define you, that they are your identity, that that is who you are, that even though maybe you've been forgiven for your sins, it's going to happen again. You're going to do it again, and and then that's going to, again, define who you are. And if we let him, this enemy, he will try to steal away everything that God has already promised to us in Jesus. Well, as Tiffany said, we're continuing in our Grow series today. We've got just a few weeks left. We've reached John chapter 20. And so when we left the text two weeks ago, uh, Jesus had breathed his last on the cross. um, And then his body had been laid in a tomb in a garden near where he was killed. And as far as anyone could see, it was over. Uh, Even though... Jesus talked about his resurrection. Nobody that followed him really understood it or believed, didn't understand what he meant by his death and his return. And so um, we're going to go to the tomb this morning on Sunday morning, but nobody's going expecting to find him alive. This is the story we're going to step into. John chapter 20, if you've got your Bible there, uh, verse 1 says this. 
It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, who is Mary Magdalene? We meet her uh, in Luke, uh, in, the, in, the, in the story of Luke, that Luke tells about Jesus's life. And she has an amazing story. She's likely from the village of Magdala, which talked about Magdala a couple weeks ago. It is on the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing village there. She uh, has an amazing story because she lived a really embarrassing, humiliating life. Uh, before Jesus, <laughs> that, that like uh, Luke mentions her demon possession, her violent seizures, she had seven demons. Uh, was she previously a prostitute? We don't have confirmation of that, but there's some indication that that might be true. Was she a victim of some things that had happened to her? Likely, um, but maybe she made some bad choices as well. All we know is that her life was a disaster. And then when she met Jesus, it completely changed. He healed her. He set her free from her past. He cast the demons out of her. Mary Magdalene became a follower of Jesus. She was a big supporter of his ministry. We see her uh, present at the cross, and now she's the first one to arrive at the tomb on Sunday morning. Now, like his other followers, Mary had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the, the one that the Old Testament promised to Israel. She hoped that he would be the one that was going to come and rescue Israel from under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Uh, but then her hopes were shattered when Friday happened. Because on Friday, Jesus was crucified, and even though Jesus talked about his death, nobody that followed him really expected it to happen. They didn't really get it. They thought he was going to be the one that was going to free them. And so when he died, it was a bit of a disappointment for everybody. So she gets to the tomb on Sunday morning. She finds that his body is not there. It's missing. And if you've ever been overwhelmed by grief or disappointment in this moment, you can probably relate to Mary. You know, maybe you've got a Friday in your life, a day when all of your hopes were shattered, when you, you prayed for something and nothing happened, or your, your marriage or a significant relationship came to an end, uh, someone took advantage of you or hurt you. Maybe you describe that moment as a time when God let you down, and you even started to ask the question, where are you? God, where are you? I think that's a little bit of what Mary's experiencing with Friday, and now she gets to the tomb, and he's missing uh, Mary's going back to the tomb, but like I said, she's not going to f expecting to find Jesus alive. She's going to go anoint the corpse. According to the Jewish law, the Jewish custom, you only had a limited amount of time to anoint the body after someone had died. So she's likely in a hurry. Uh, she's trying to get this burial process started. It's a lengthy process. Uh, Jesus was laid in the entrance to a tomb on Friday. The Sabbath was quick approaching. And so they didn't have time to do the entire process. So they just kind of shoved him in to the tomb, rolled the rock in place. Now she's coming back to complete the process. And uh, it's going to take a long time. She doesn't have a long time. So she doesn't have time for nonsense. And so when she comes and finds the body missing, it immediately causes confusion in her mind. But what she doesn't see is what we're often not able to see, and that's that God can take something that seems like a disaster and make something great out of it, right? I, I, I think that's what's gonna happen in Mary's life. Uh, in fact, we now call the Friday when Jesus died Good Friday because on this side of the empty tomb, we know the good that came out of the work that he did on the cross, but I can promise you that that was not a good Friday for his followers, that they uh, saw it as a very dark Friday. It was the original Black Friday, in fact. 
John reminds us in this verse that this happens on the first day of the week, which of course means it's Sunday. Uh, Jesus was buried on Friday. Saturday was the Sabbath. But one scholar suggests that the first day of the week is meant to tell the reader, not just that it's Sunday, but that it's a new creation, that something new is happening here, that the curse which had started has been reversed because Jesus is going to redeem a very dark Friday for Mary and make it a good Friday for her and all his disciples. He's going to bring good from it and show that even in our difficulties, even in our disappointments, uh, those can provide an opportunity for us to see Jesus in a whole new way. So let's continue in verse two. It says this, so she, Mary, came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, um, we've been doing this study for 30 some weeks. We know who's the other disciple? John. John, he never refers to himself as the, as in, in the first person. He always calls himself the other disciple or this, the one Jesus loved. I guess if you're writing the story, you get to decide what your nickname's gonna be. Uh, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and she runs to Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, um, and Mary goes with this message. His body is gone. Someone has taken him. Look, this is her first, this is her first response. Not that he's been raised from the dead. Someone has taken him. Somebody has stolen his body. So this, this tells us that she's not going to expecting to find a resurrection, right? Where is he? It's, is, is it possible that these same men who killed him and laid him in the tomb may have taken it and thrown into a larger grave um, just to get rid of it with all the other bodies? They often did that. Verse three, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Peter and John are confused. They take off for the tomb. Uh, and I want you to notice the language that John uses when he describes this foot race to the tomb. I think it's rather humorous. Maybe you'll find it funny too. Verse four says, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> right? John, gotta love him, John. Uh, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him. <laughs> Peter was behind me and went straight into the tomb. And then he goes on. Uh, he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who, by the way, had reached the tomb first, <laughs> also went inside. He saw and believed. Don't you love that? John is like, a little brother, isn't he? He's like, I'm not gonna beat you all the time, but when I do, I'm gonna remind you that I beat you. I, can you just imagine Peter reading this, uh, if, if Peter were still alive when this was written, seeing this and going, oh, you had to include that, right? You had to, you had to tell him I beat you. But um, you know, I love that all these years later, as John is remembering, remember John, this happened when John was probably a teenager, maybe 20 years old, and he's writing this in his 80s. So he's got many years to reflect back on it. But he's, he's, he's thinking, I gotta be sure to tell people that I beat Peter to the tomb. I gotta be sure to tell people I was the faster one. Uh, but even though John got there first, what, the other thing you notice is that John was afraid to go in. He was unwilling to be the first one in the tomb. So he gets to the tomb, looks inside, sees the cloth laying there, and then stays outside. And Peter rushes right in. Peter, the impulsive one, rushes right in right away. Now, I think what this shows in the text is a little bit of mistrust or unbelief of Mary Magdalene in John. Because what would happen is a good, devout Jewish man, if he were to be in the presence of a dead body, would be declared unclean and would not be allowed to eat dinner with the crew. And so remember, we're in the Passover season. 
there's probably a big meal coming. And John, I think, doesn't want to be unclean. And so he rushes to the tomb. He gets there first, but then he stays on the outside and looks in. And then Peter decides to rush in and go in there. Because if Mary's wrong, it's going to ruin John's day. But there's something interesting about John's response too. The text says that he saw and believed. At least according to John, he is the first one, not just the first one to the tomb, but he's the first one to believe that the resurrection actually happened because he saw the cloth, he saw the arrangement of the tomb, he saw how the linen was separate from the cloth, and he said, this is not a body thievery. This is not somebody robbing a grave. Uh, Something intentional has happened here. In fact, uh, the Greek word in the text is the word arao when it says that John saw, and it means to see with understanding. So it's not just something he visualized. It's like I saw and I understood. John sees and he believes he's putting all the pieces together. And I guess if you do that, maybe that gives you the right to call yourself the one that Jesus loved, right? Um, John wasn't expecting Jesus to be alive, but something happened to him in this moment to lead John and then likely Peter as well to, to understand that Jesus is alive. They looked at this tomb and they go, This is what really happened. Jesus kept talking about that. And here's the thing you need to understand, that John believed before he ever saw Jesus in the flesh. He saw the empty tomb, and he believed. I wonder what about you? If you're here today, and you're just kind of checking the Jesus thing out, maybe you don't know, maybe somebody invited you here, and you're not really sure why you're here today, is it possible that God's got you here because he wants you to believe in this one fact, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because I'm telling you, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then everything else that he said and everything else that he did has a much higher importance because ain't many people been raised from the dead, is what I'm telling you. And so if this is true, it makes the difference for everything in our life. It's, it's everything that we need in our life, this resurrection. John saw the empty tomb and believed. Goes on, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. We don't know how they missed Mary Magdalene on the return trip because they're going back to where they were staying. Mary Magdalene is coming back to the tomb. And it says in verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And the Greek word for crying here indicates that she's weeping or wailing. This is not a a gentle sob, right? She is uh, in mourning and she is weeping and wailing. This is customary in the culture. It's a way that they mourn. But she's not creating a scene. She's hurting. She's, she's thinking, okay, why? Why Friday? Why now? Why, why, God? Why did this have to happen? Verse 11 goes on and says, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Uh, They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, remember, Peter and John, they believe they're on their way back to where they were staying, but Mary is just discovering this scene again for the second time. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, why didn't she recognize Jesus? Uh, was, it, was it too, too dark? Uh, was, remember, it was still dark when she left for the tomb. Uh, did Jesus look different? Is this some kind of magic God mask that he puts on so she doesn't recognize him? Was she overwhelmed by emotion? We don't know. But it's interesting that she still calls Jesus Lord. I mean, the Greek word that's used here is the word kyrios, which means Lord or master, And if you were counting on somebody to be your Lord or your master, it would probably be the guy that was going to come and defeat the Roman Empire. And so on Friday, when Jesus died, you would think that somebody in that position, they would probably recognize he's not not the Lord. 
because the Lord was going to come and save us. The Lord was going to come with an army and beat these people and, and save the Jews, rescue like Moses did when he took us out from under oppression in Egypt. This is not the Lord. But Mary sticks to that. She says, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. Even in her confusion, even when she didn't understand what was happening, she stayed strong and believed. And so I just have to imagine that Jesus was grinning in that moment. Not just thinking about Mary standing strong in her belief, but as agonizing as the crucifixion must have been for him, you have to think that he was looking so forward to the resurrection and to appearing before his disciples. Verse 15 goes on. He asked her, remember this is Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus, okay? He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking she was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Now, remember this tomb was in a garden. We learn from John that Jesus was crucified near a garden. The tomb was in the garden. John's been using this garden language to connect the story Back to Genesis. We're going to investigate this in a couple minutes, okay? But the garden is where sin entered the world. The garden is where our sin's going to be forgiven in the resurrection. She asks him, do you know where my Savior is? And then I'm sure Mary, Mary never in all of her life forgot the next word that Jesus said to her. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. At this point, Mary has a decision to make. She has to decide who is this guy and why is there nobody in that tomb? Why is the tomb empty? Did, did somebody really take the body? Is this some kind of cruel joke? Is this some kind of hoax that some of the other disciples are pulling? Or is Jesus really alive? And you know, at some point in all of our lives, you and I have to make that decision too. You know, did he really rise from the dead? Is Jesus really alive? Or is this one big cover-up still misleading people 2,000 years later? Maybe you know the name Charles Colson. He was an assistant to President Richard Nixon and uh, was convicted for his involvement in Watergate. But later in his life, he came to know the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. He came to know Christ while in prison. And he told this story in one of his books of the scandal, how that scandal, Watergate, led him to believe in the resurrection. Here's what Colson writes. He said, Watergate involved a conspiracy perpetuated by the closest aides to the president of the United States, powerful men who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, he testified against Nixon, uh, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. And then Colson goes on. He says, but what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of these apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? But none did. Men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. They will never give their lives for something they know to be false. 
He says, the Watergate cover-up reveals the true nature of humanity. Even political zealots at the pinnacle of power will, in the crunch, save to save their own necks, even at the expense of the ones they profess to serve so loyally. But the apostles could not deny Jesus because they had seen him face to face and they knew he had risen from the dead. And he finishes it this way. He says, no, you can take it from an expert in cover-ups. I live through Watergate that nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and is Lord. 2,000 years later, nothing less than the power of the risen Christ could inspire Christians around the world to remain faithful despite prison, torture, and death. Jesus is Lord. That's the thrilling message of Easter. It's a historic fact, one convincingly established by the evidence and one you can bet your life upon. And so Mary... She comes to the tomb looking for her dear Lord, but now she is standing face to face with her risen Savior. And he called her by name. And that got her attention and, and probably reminded her of the words that he spoke in John chapter 10 when he said, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow them because they know his voice. He calls her by name. This, this same man who had rescued her from her past mistakes now once and for all has guaranteed her future. The story goes on. The second part of verse 16 says, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She's, she's overcome with emotion. She thought Jesus was gone, dead, but now she knows that he is truly Alive, And then verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. This is Jesus's way of saying, hey, something great has happened here, but I'm not done yet. Like, I want you to know there's more coming. In fact, somebody asked me this week, hey, is this gonna be our last week in Grow? And I'm like, no, God's not done yet. Like, he, he's not done with these disciples. He's not done with the story of Jesus. Uh, he's not, we still got a couple weeks to go. But the important part about that is he's not done with you yet either. Like if you're here and you are, if you're alive and you are, God's still got something for you. He's got a plan for you. He's got a mission for you. He's got something he wants to accomplish in you and through you. And he's not done with Mary either. He's gonna give her one important assignment. It says this, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary is the first person to see the risen Christ. And she is given the assignment to go tell everybody else that he is alive. Can I tell you why Mary's assignment is such a big deal? Because in ancient societies like these, the testimony of a woman carried no weight. Like no credibility. I mean, they, in many cases, they weren't even allowed to be witnesses in court because no one would believe them. And that's part of what made Mary Magdalene's testimony so important. Uh, author Gary Bird says it this way. He says, women rarely, if ever, enjoyed the status of courier or messenger, much less legal witness for critical events. Mary's commission to run and speak is a deep honoring that Jesus gives her alone. And Jesus appears first to a woman, but not just any woman, uh, like other women in this culture, she was oppressed, but she was also a woman with a reputation of having sinned. She had a past life that was embarrassing. And in Jesus's kingdom, Mary Magdalene became 
an apostle to the apostles. Now, let me ask you, if John and these early Christians are trying to get a movement of God started in this ancient culture, why would they ever make up a story where a woman is the one who delivers the message of Jesus being alive? Their primary witness being a woman wouldn't make any sense. Knowing what you know about the roles of women in this culture, would that be the way you would write the story? No, unless that was how it really happened. Yet each of the four gospels record the testimony of women announcing the resurrection of Jesus. Again, if you're making the story up, you would never choose to write about the testimony of a woman unless that's how it happened. But Mary Magdalene received the message first and she got to deliver the message first. She understood the assignment. And now 2,000 years later, we are still talking about Jesus. 2,000 years later, men, women, students, children have given their lives on account of the historical fact that the tomb is empty, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that great news came with so many implications. Again, Dr. Gary Bird said that because John is the fourth of four gospels, that he can write with the assumption that his readers already know the critical details, and John is able to then use his gospel to fill in the gaps. And so... I talked to you about how creation language and garden language is really an important part of John's gospel. Let me make some ties for you here now. As we see in John 1.1, John 1.1 starts with in the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1 starts with in the beginning, right? There are seven I am statements in the book of John. There are seven miracles. We've talked about that as we've gone through the Grow series. Really kind of ties back to the seven days of creation, seven being a number of perfection and completion in the Jewish culture. Then John 20 opens with on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? The first day of the week, Sunday. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, the sixth day of the week. In Scripture, we have an account of everything that happened from Sunday, Palm Sunday. I'll go this way so you can see it. From Palm Sunday up through the week to Friday, the sixth day of the week, right? We know what happened every day of that week. Friday was the sixth day of the week. Jesus was crucified. John nor any of the other gospel writers don't record anything happening on Saturday. Why? Saturday was the Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of rest. In the story of creation, we see the story of what God created, day one, two, three, four, five, six. What did God do on the seventh day in creation? He rested, right? Why? Because God was tired? No, <laughs> because the work was done. What do we see in Jesus? On the sixth day, he was crucified. And when he breathes his dying breath, what does he say? It is finished. The work was done on the sixth day. On the seventh day, God rested. And then on the first day of the week, what happened? Jesus is raised from the dead. John 21, 20 verse one means a new day, a new creation has begun. Is it any surprise that this tomb is in the garden? I mean, Adam and Eve were in the garden in Genesis 1, right? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, but Mary is invited into the garden, uh, right? And there she reunites with her Lord and Savior. Do you see the parallels here between what John is trying to tell us about the crucifixion and resurrection and the new creation? I mean, consider what this meant to Mary. Consider how easily Mary could have gotten stuck in a good Friday world, you know, a world of disappointment and discouragement. You know, in a good Friday world, Mary's mistakes and former ways could have easily taken over her life. She could have let them just rush in. As soon as Jesus was gone, they could have rushed in and taken over. And if we still live like it's Friday, the same thing can happen to us. And so we can get overwhelmed by our disappointment and struggles. I mean, things like if our marriage is failing or has failed, if 
we had a dream that never became a reality, or we got a health report from the doctor that was really bad, looks really bad, or or we had hurt and disappointment in others, or hurt and disappointment in the church, or your past mistakes and choices that keep like sneaking back into your life, or even disappointment with God. We can let those things take over our lives. For so many of us, we live our lives like today is Friday. But I'm here to tell you that Sunday's here that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, and maybe he's going to call you by name today. I mean, maybe you are here for the sole purpose of God calling you to himself for the very first time to trust Jesus. You're here and he's calling your name again to remind you that he's forgiven you. He wants to let you know that he has something planned for your life, that he's got a purpose for you, and you've never realized that before today, that you have an assignment from the Lord. Or maybe... Maybe a long time ago you made a decision that you were going to follow Jesus and that's just kind of gone by the wayside because life gets so busy and you you need to be reminded that he's forgiven you and that he redeemed your life, that in Christ you are a new creation. You are living in a new creation, that the old is gone and the new is here and you are here today because God wants to remind you of that. That's the message that Mary Magdalene got to deliver to the apostles, that her life was changed once again when she met her resurrected Savior and got to be the one to deliver that message to the world, that Jesus is alive. Which leads to this question, and it's the one I want to ask you and leave you with before we close. What message is your life sending to the world? You know, Jesus sent Mary out. He assigned her the task of telling others about his resurrection His other disciples got to share in that assignment to go tell the world the good news of Sunday. And now Jesus has the same assignment for each of us. He has a message that he wants us to carry to the world. So what message are you sending with your life? Let me put it this way. When people around you look at your life, what do they see? If you're a follower of Jesus, does your life look any different than your neighbor's lives? What do they see when they look at the way you live, uh, when the way you lead, when the way you use your time? When people look at the way you spend your money, does it look different from what the rest of the world does? Uh, What about when they see you parent, when they see you interact with your spouse if you're married, when they see you interact with your boyfriend or girlfriend? uh, What do they see in the way that you act, in the way that you love, in the way that you forgive people? In the way that you talk about life in this world and the things that truly matter, what do people see in your life? What message is your life sending to this world? If we're not careful, if we're not intentional, we can send the wrong message with our lives. You know, in his very last words to his followers before Jesus ascended up into heaven, we see it in Acts chapter one. He says this, he appears before his disciples and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember, if you're in Christ, that you have that power, that same power that the apostles had in the book of Acts that, that propelled the growth of the church throughout all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have that power living inside of us. Those of us who are in Christ have that same resurrection power living inside of us. When we remember who we are, we remember what Jesus has done for us and we remember why we are here, we have the potential of sending a powerful message that declares that Jesus is alive, that by his stripes we are healed, that there is a way through whatever it is you're going through. That's the message we need to be sending to the world. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I am uh, so thankful for the resurrection, first of all, that by bringing your son back from the dead, that you show that you can overcome anything that's happening in our life. I mean, if you can bring a person who was physically dead back to life, you can bring a relationship back to life. You can bring a dream back to life. You can, you can bring an addict back to life. God, you can bring anything that's happening in our lives back to life. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the story of Mary Magdalene, that she got to be an apostle to the apostles, that this person with such a, a broken life and a, 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 a terrible past got to be the one who would deliver your word to the world. God, we just pray in the same way that you would use those of us who are broken, who have a past that we're not proud of, to send the right message to the world. We wanna show that you are a God who redeems, who restores, uh, a God who can bring things, dead things back to life. And so uh, we just pray that you would use that uh, in us. And Lord, when we do that, when we go and tell the world and when people find their way back to you because of the work that you're doing in us, we wanna make sure that we will give you all the praise and all the glory that you deserve for that. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.